Well, today I am really excited to start a four-week series on love, relationships, and marriage. And before we get started, I wanted to begin the entire series with a little bit of a disclaimer. And here's what that is. Um, I recognize that not everyone in this room or not everyone watching online happens to be married. And if your relationship status is that of single, I would like to just speak to all of you for just a moment. Because I think seeing the series theme, that there might be a temptation for you to think that over the next four weeks, you might as well just sleep in on Sunday morning, not get out of bed, and stay home because this series really isn't for you. Well, there's two things that I'd like to just share to all of you that are single. The first is this. You are single now, but you may not be and probably won't be single forever. And if you, during this series, come in with the mindset that I'm going to think about that someday spouse, that I'm going to think about marriage someday, even if it's a long ways away, and listen to what God wants to share with us about love and relationships, I will tell you this. You will be able to someday go into your marriage more prepared than I was, and many of us were, and to avoid some of the challenges that almost every single relationship and marriage marriage specifically, can face. The second thing that I'd like to share, and this is really not just for single people, but for everyone. While most of the application for this series is going to be geared around marriage, um, the principles, the truths, the power behind these things are true not just of the marriage relationship. Almost all of it can also be translated into how do we act and interact with the people at work, with the people in our neighborhoods, with the people at school, and with our extended family. Does that make sense? Understand what I mean, single people? All right, cool. I love you. I love you. This series is for you too. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to expose or to think about four lies that as— I've thought about my own marriage as I've looked out at other marriages as I've read books. Four lies that I see there being a great temptation for every married couple to fall into. And as we begin, I think I want you to understand that behind a lie is a belief, right? And so often when we believe things— Whether we believe the truth or we believe a lie, either way, it's going to affect us. Our beliefs affect what we do and how we act and what we think. And that's really our first uh, fill-in for this entire series, is that your beliefs about marriage, going into it or in the midst of it, will shape your behavior in that marriage— And it will shape your attitude about your marriage or maybe your attitude about your spouse and what he or she should be doing or should not be doing, and on and on and on. Now, here's the thing again about these beliefs. This is true whether what you believe is right or wrong. So you can see the danger in believing a lie. Because if you're not aware that it's a lie, something that's not true that you believe— is going to have a very difficult and damaging effect on your relationship. So, it begs the question on the screen, where do people develop 
their beliefs about love and marriage. Now, if you're a Christian, your first answer is Bible. God, you know, the confirmation answer. God, right? But according to surveys and according to studies, that's not where most people get their beliefs or their ideas or um, their thoughts about love and marriage. I bet you could guess the first one. It's here on the screen. The first place, time and time and time and time and time again, at the top of the list as to where people are sort of finding what they believe about marriage is from your parents' marriage. Whether consciously or most often subconsciously. And this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Of all the marriages in the world, except the one that you're in, the one that you had a front row seat for the most was the marriage of your mom and your dad. And as you grew up, there were certain things that you saw that you're like, yeah, I wouldn't do it that way. I'm not going to do that. And there may be, God willing, where some things like, you know, I really appreciate that about their relationship and what they do or what they don't do. It's probably a mixed bag. But here's the reality, that whether you liked it or didn't like it, Studies tell us that both affect how you act and interact. We very easily fall into the same traps and patterns of our parents before us. Um, One example of that would be conflict resolution. Now, some of this has to do with your individual personality type. But if you grew up in a house where mom and dad settled their differences by yelling at each other, more than likely, that will happen in your marriage too. If they gave each other the silent treatment for days or hours or hopefully not longer than that, more than likely the temptation to deal with conflict through a silent treatment is going to pop up into your marriage as well. Um, This shows itself in what do you do when things get tough in marriage? What your parents did or didn't do can affect you. And and here's the thing. Every marriage in this room has had difficult times. And if you're engaged in this room and you think it's going to be all lollipops and gumdrops, and you probably don't. But let me just tell you, it won't be. And every marriage, like every life, has ups and downs and difficulties. And if you in your home saw your parents go through one of those seasons— And while it was rough and while they didn't always like each other, you saw two people who were committed to being together and they both knew and believed it was life, do us part. That's ingrained in your heart and mind too. On the flip side, if you grew up in a home where when things got really tough, they quit, that has an effect. How we show affection in marriage can oftentimes be traced back to (laughs) affection in front of our kids, can be traced back to what we saw uh, mom and dad, uh, mom and dad and how they, how they acted. The roles that you play in marriage, whether it be, you know, who does uh, the finances and who mows the lawn and who does the cooking and who takes out the garbage and on and on and on. Um, All of those things have a great effect on what we believe and what we think about marriage and what our spouse should or shouldn't do. The other thing that really affects our beliefs about love and marriage is culture. There we go. Is culture. Think about it. And this is not a surprise, but this was number two on the list. 
every single minute of every single day, because you have this thing called a phone, there are, which is a little computer, all, there are always messages coming at you about love, about relationships, and about marriage. Whether it be your phone, whether it be social media, whether it be friends and what they think, or classmates and what they think, whether it be movies, and on and on and on. Super Bowl commercials, everything, right? We are inundated with messages from culture. And we could spend hours and hours talking about all the things that culture says is okay and maybe even preferable about marriage and engagement and dating and why they're just so damaging and destructive what culture so often says. We don't have time for that, but what I do want to let you know is this. That when we think about where we develop our beliefs about love and marriage, and then we think about the trustworthiness of both of these areas, we need to come to the reality and the fact that it is so easy for me to go into marriage or to be in marriage and to believe something that should be, that just isn't true. It is so easy for us to believe lies about marriage, about relationships, and about love. So the two things we want to accomplish in this series is first this. We want to expose four lies, one each week, that can and does keep couples apart. And we're going to do that with God's truth. Now, here's the interesting thing. I'm a Christian. I believe and trust in Jesus as my Savior. I believe that God's word is inspired without error. I believe what the Bible says, that God created the world and he created marriage. And so I love the fact that God's truth is going to trump worldly truth when it comes to the reality of marriage. But here's what I will tell you if you're a skeptic about the Bible or a skeptic about Christianity right now. Just listen. Because even if yet you are not sure whether you're a Christian, there is such wisdom in what God shares for all of us, no matter what our status is, okay? So we're going to do that, expose four lies. And then the second thing we're going to do is this. We are going to provide a framework, provide a framework to overcome these lies with God's strength. And we're going to get really practical. At the end of each message, we're going to give you a to-do, Not that you have the power to change your marriage in and of yourself, so it's with God's strength, but we're going to provide a very specific framework in how to work towards overcoming the lie that was exposed. So, as we get into the very first lie, we need to travel back in time to 1996. Some of you weren't born yet. Actually, that number of people at this church not born yet is very much increasing, and it scares me because that means I'm old. Um, 1996, there was a movie that I've referenced before that came out, and the name of it is Jerry Maguire. Okay, Jerry Maguire was like a romantic comedy, Tom Cruise and Renelle Zellweger, and throughout the entire movie, they kind of had this thing for each other, but they didn't really talk about it, at least not specifically. 
At the end of the movie, Tom Cruise needs to share what's on his heart, and you can tell that he was passionate about it because he goes to like this women's book club, right? And no man will go to a women's book club unless he's got something really important to say. And he takes Renee aside, and they stand in front of all these women, and he with tears in his eyes, he has a whole bunch of things to say, like the world is cynical, blah, 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 blah. And then he closes with these words. They're on the screen. You complete me. And in that moment, millions of American women are like, oh, if only I had a man like Maverick. (laughs) And millions of American men are like, wow, that's a good line. (laughs) I wonder if it'll work on my girlfriend or wife. I got to write that down, right? But in Tom Cruise's very famous words, as wonderful as they might feel, and as a little bit of truth that there could be in them, let me just tell you, let me warn you, there is a subtle lie in that statement that can and will damage your friendship, your companionship with your spouse if you were to carry them out to their fullest lengths. And the lie that is contained in that statement by Tom Cruise is this, lie number one for our series, that my spouse can somehow meet all my needs, that there's a chance that I can find the person that is going to fully and completely fill in everything that I need in my life and fully and completely meet all my needs. Now, some of you right now are thinking, I don't believe that. Just wait. Just hold on. Whether it's not specifically in a huge way, there are subtle ways that you and I all tend to find ourselves at times believing this lie, even subconsciously, and it affects the way we act and interact in our marriages and sometimes even with our friends. So in order to expose this lie, what I need to do is to first start um, with some foundational work. And to do that, what I'd like to do is to go back uh, to creation and go back to the Garden of Eden. And in the garden, at the time we're going to turn to in Genesis chapter 2, there's only one human being on the planet. God has just created Adam, and he's, he's it. Lots of animals and Adam, okay? And God, in Genesis chapter 2, makes this observation. He says, It is not good... For the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the interesting thing when you read through the context of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, um, after every single day of creation, what did God say? It was good. It was good. It was good. And what that means for God, perfect God, to say something is good means that it was absolutely perfect, just the way that he intended it, without sin, works perfectly. But here, even before the fall into sin, there's one thing that God said was not good, not because God had created sin, but because God hadn't yet addressed it. You got to understand Not only Adam, but every single one of us, God hardwired us. God created us with the desire to do life with someone. Adam hadn't quite 
totally understood that yet. So God had a project for him to do. Let's go to the next verse. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them then to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Have you ever thought about why God had Adam name the animals? Is God like not a creative? He couldn't think of good names for all the animals, and Adam had that gift? No, it had nothing to do with it, right? The reason God had Adam name all the animals was that God wanted Adam to recognize and realize what God already knew about him. You see, when all the animals came towards Adam, Adam noticed that Mr. Elephant had Mrs. Elephant to walk around with, and Mr. Monkey had Mrs. Monkey to swing around with, and uh, Mr. Eagle had Mrs. Eagle to fly around with, right? But Adam had no one. God says as much in verse 21. He says, For Adam, no suitable helper was found. There's a lot of baggage around this word helper. Um, and that's because that word in the English can mean a whole host of different specific things. And the baggage that so often comes with the English word helper is the idea that Eve or women were created to be in some ways subservient to men or they're not on an equal playing field. Um, men are here and women are here. Um, if, if you've had that thought or feeling or if you've heard someone say that, that that's what Christians believe— um, that's another lie I'll expose today. Um, because you cannot get that out of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for helper is azer. And that word does not mean a subservient helper. It means a powerful completer, in the sense not that you complete everything, but a, a powerful person that comes to bring help and strength. In fact, this word azer was often used um, for an entire military battalion who would come and powerfully help the rest of the army that was suffering. It wasn't a subservient battalion. In many cases, it was a more powerful battalion, a military reinforcement to help strengthen that which was already there. That's the idea more so of what we see with this idea of helper, and specifically the word azer. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. He recognized that he was alone. And so God does something about it. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her, Eve, to the man. Verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And I highlighted that word said, because the reality is, the way that this is written, Adam did not say this. This section in the quotes is the first poetry or song 
written in the entire Bible. And so the better way to think about it is Adam, with joy and excitement, sings a song because of how happy he is that God created this Azare to walk through life with him. And I was trying to think, is there a way that I could encapsulate, you know, Adam's feelings in that moment? Is there, is there a, one word I could use? And I, I thought back, this again shows my age, I thought back to the TV show Blossom and Joey Lawrence, and he's like, whoa, right? That's what it is. And I thought they'd get a little more laughs, I think. But I, because I really, I asked Carrie, I practiced this, like, what tone should I use? Whoa, okay. That's what Adam is thinking as Eve is brought before him for the very first time. This is an amazing thing. This is a good thing. I'm so thankful. You knew exactly what I needed, Lord. And then verse 24 God institutes or creates or begins marriage. So this is why a man will leave his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And in this word, one flesh, we see a very unique aspect to the marriage relationship. It is the closest designed to be at least, the closest human relationship on the planet. It's the one that we are to make the most sacrifices for. It is the one that is the most spiritually and physically intimate. It is the greatest, in many ways, relationship that God ever created. The relationship of man and woman in marriage, committed for a lifetime, till death do us part. Now, if I could just sidebar for a second, because I'm going to go back to those of you who are single, and um, you're thinking, I sometimes feel like Adam. Like, I could use partnership and companionship too. And I just want to tell you that while there is something unique and special to marriage, this is not the only way that God has designed us as people to help address loneliness and help create community. In fact, one of the other most special relationships that there is on the planet is relationship of Christian to Christian. As they, the Bible says, are one body, the body of Christ. And I know single people, it's, it's not exactly the same. I get it. But, there is support for you too. You do not need to go through life by yourself. God doesn't want you to. Even before you're married, there is the blessing of Christian friendship and companionship all around you and specifically in this church. Back to marriage. It's pretty special, guys. It takes a lot of work. There's a lot of blessing in it. You're sitting, some of you, next to a person that you don't like all the time, but that God willing, you will never leave, right? And in marriage, that one fleshing, we, we see this, this opportunity for two people to not only um, meet physical needs like food and housing and to bring two budgets together and two incomes together. 
we see something deeper. We, we see God providing an avenue for people to help also support each other's foundational emotional needs. To bless them with unconditional love. To provide a safe place for them to be. To comfort them in, in times of difficulty. To always be there for each other. And as wonderful as it is, though, I do need to point one thing out. The great complexity and intimacy and wonderfulness of marriage is also the reason why we can so easily find ourselves believing a lie about who our spouse should be for us and what they should do. Our next fill-in is this. The gift of marriage and the spouse was not intended to replace the need for God. The gift of marriage was not intended to replace the need for God. And again, this might be something that you're like, I get it, I get it, but let, let, me, um, let me show you a list of needs, emotional needs that people tend to have. These were written um, in a book, uh, a marriage book that someone wrote. Next slide, please. Um, and there's a whole bunch of uh, needs that people have. Needs for acceptance, appreciation, attention, respect, security, approval, comfort, encouragement. Can any of you relate to needing any of those things? Okay. Any of you look for some of these things from your spouse? Yeah. Should you? Yeah, to a certain degree. But in my study for this message, um, I think uh, a Christian author named Tim Keller um, put it better than I could articulate on my own. Here's what he wrote in his book called The Meaning of Marriage. He wrote, We come into our marriages driven by all kinds of fears, being alone, whatever it might be, desires, and needs. Is that true for you? Did you come into marriage with that? Yeah. If I look to my marriage to fill the God-sized spiritual vacuum in my heart, I will not be in position to serve my spouse. He continues. Only God can fill a God-sized hole. Until God has the proper place in my life, I will always be complaining that my spouse is not loving me well enough, not respecting me enough, or not supporting me enough. Until God has the proper place in my life. This is huge, guys. And it's a, a subtle lie because there are things that we can definitely, in a Christian healthy marriage, expect or hope for from our spouses, but it only goes so far. Let me show you what I mean. I felt like God had an object lesson for Adam with naming the animals today, so I'd bring one myself. This, um, this plastic container represents my spouse. Now, my spouse is much prettier than this. Um, so you can think about it as being your spouse, okay? So this is, this is, this, that didn't, I didn't mean it that way. Let's move on. 
we all come to marriage with a whole bunch of spiritual needs. I'm sorry, relational needs. I showed you a list of different things. Acceptance, comfort, encouragement, all of that kind of stuff. This is true of every single one of us. We are expecting our spouse to do something for us and to be a blessing to us in one way or another. And that's not a bad thing. Let me reiterate, it's not a bad thing. But what can happen if we're not careful is we take our relational needs, okay, and we take the full weight, not just a little bit, but the full weight of these relational needs, and we expect our spouse to fulfill and carry them. And because they love you, they try to. But they can't. And what happens when we place our happiness, our security, our comfort, ultimately, and on and on, ultimately on our spouse first, first of all, you're going to be disappointed because you thought he or she was going to fulfill your needs. But she clearly didn't. Or he clearly crumbled. You're not the man I married. And your spouse is going to feel crushed under the weight of expectations that you have for them, that there is no honest, real way they could ever fill. Because you have a God-sized hole, and you did not marry God. Do you know who you married? I'll tell you. You married—I know something about your marriage—you married a sinner— You do not have an imperfect spouse. I'm sorry, you do not have a perfect spouse. You have an imperfect one. Now, before you get too upset and complain, like, man, how did I choose this one? The the thing is, she married, or he married the same. An imperfect spouse. And the thing is, we were not designed to ever fill the God-sized hole. We were never designed to totally, fully complete the person we marry. So, what do I do with these needs? I think Pastor Paul had some good direction for that. As he wrote to Philippians, he kind of ended his letter with a little bit of an encouragement to them, and he said this, God, God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Your spouse was not built to make you feel good every day. He or she can't. Does not have enough, broad enough shoulders. Is not perfect enough. It's not good enough. But God is built that way. And he meets our needs through, and maybe the best way to think about it is through Jesus. So it's not that our spouse holds up those needs. They assist, but ultimately it's only God who can truly carry the weight of our needs. And and I love how Paul references Jesus. Because I think when it comes to relational and emotional needs, the cross is the answer to all of it. 
The place where Jesus died and changed our lives is the place where our relational needs are ultimately met at the end of the day. Let me show you. You know that need for acceptance? I know sometimes I've got an issue with putting too much of this on my wife. Um, I think Sunday afternoons is one of those times where I'm like a little... Um, puppy dog, uh, waiting for her to say something nice about my message. And even if it wasn't good, you know, just lie to me. Tell me that, you know, you liked it, you know, type of thing or whatever. But while that's not bad or for me to hope that she says something, for me to, to feel like my, my sermon was either good or bad, or I'm a good preacher, a me- medium preacher, or a bad preacher, based on how Carrie accepts me, cannot be ultimately where I receive my acceptance. I receive my acceptance from the cross where there Jesus changed my life forever and made me and gave me the identity not of preacher or of dad or of husband, but of child of God. And that never changes with the passing tides of life. Or how about, how about comfort? How about comfort? Um, you know, I think a message like this today is going to work a whole bunch of different feelings in our hearts. And one of them is going to be guilt. Okay? You do not need to take that guilt out of this room. Not because your spouse tells you they forgive you, although that's a good thing too, but because someone bigger and greater and better says the same thing when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Your sins for not being the perfect husband or wife have been forgiven. That's true comfort, my, my friends. Encouragement? Um, how about that, that need um, for encouragement? Um, y- you think of, uh, you know, feelings of maybe life not going the way you intended it to, for marriage uh, being harder than you thought, of not living in the neighborhood you thought you would live in or have the size house that you were hoping you were to have, blah, 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 blah. And it's so easy to start throwing relationship darts at each other. Like, you, if I married, you know, you think this, if I married someone out, blah, 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 whatever, right? Because the future wasn't as good as you thought it would be in the past. But let me just tell you, in Jesus Christ, your future is awesome. Because in Jesus, you know exactly where you're going to live. And it's a mansion, in the glories of heaven, because of Jesus, because of God, not because of spouse. Uh, how about respect? Um, ladies, if you weren't aware of this, let me just tell you that this relational need is the one that probably f- for most men is the biggest one. And if you want to really damage your relationship, and really hurt your husband. Show no respect to them. Belittle what they do. And guys, sometimes we, we find too much of our self-esteem and who we are in a title that we have or, or what we do or if the people uh, you know, respect us uh, around us or how many people we manage or how good our business is or whatever. I mean, we, we got to deal with that, right, too. Because the truth is, is that you don't ultimately get your respect from your wife. Oh, yes, she can help with that. She can reflect it from what God says. But ultimately what God says is that I've changed your life and given you tremendous purpose. And I don't care whether you're the boss, the owner, or on the bottom of the totem pole. You have great purpose to live your life as a response to what Jesus has done. The last one, security. 
I think this is one that many women, maybe more than men, have a need for or a feeling for, just to feel safe, right? Guys, you need to hear that. You need to know that. And if you're leading your marriage in a way that doesn't allow your spouse to feel safe, you need to work on that. But ladies, what you need to hear is that likely your spouse can't provide what you're looking for. But God can. And God does. The Almighty God is with you every single day. And here's the thing that we need to understand. It's this. That marriage, next slide, marriage was designed to be a good thing. But it wasn't designed to be the main thing. And I hope what you hear in this message today is that I am not abdicating or supporting a husband or wife saying, oh, you got everything from God. I guess my job is done here. I don't need to do anything. But I'm also not abdicating or allowing people to say, I don't feel good about myself. It's your fault. I don't feel safe or secure or happy. It's your fault. There's a fine line there, isn't it? So what's our application? I said I was going to provide a framework each week. Real quickly, the first thing that I'm asking everyone to do, whether you're married or not, this week, is to pray about this. For those of you who are single, pray that God would guide you someday to the right person. And ultimately, the right person is not a person who looks a certain way, although that's nice too but it's guiding the person who understands the right thing. That God is the foundation of your marriage and not your love for each other. It's his love for you. For married people, I just want you to pray, with it, pray about this tension. Because some of you have spent a long time blaming your spouse for how you feel. And there's a lie in there because he or she was not built to complete you or to fulfill all your needs. And you need to pray about that and ask the God to realign your heart and to be gentler with your spouse. For some of you, that's it, because you're not ready for the next one. (laughs) But for most of you, I hope you can also do number two here. Have a conversation with your spouse. Not about what Super Bowl commercial you like the most or whatever, right? Or who's picking up who, all right? Have a real conversation. It'll contain these three things. This is my homework for you. You can take it or leave it, but I mean, I'm telling you, this is going to be helpful. The first thing you do is ask your spouse to share a relational need that he or she is feeling right now. This is not an unloading session. You know, I feel like, no, this is a question you are asking. Hey, could you share with me? One need, the biggest relational need you're feeling right now that's being unmet, and you're listening, and you're not taking it personally. You are thankful that they're sharing. And number two, what you're going to do is you're going to ask the question, and you're going to talk about it together. How does God help to meet that need? What has God promised? What does God say? What can God do that ultimately is going to hold up that relational need that you have? Because he's at the center, my friends. But then the third question, which is really important too, with this in mind, so now 
How can I help to meet that need? What does God say and do? Now, what can I do? How can I help? What can I do better than I have? You complete me. Sounds good. I think I've used it before. But in the midst of those words, there's this subtle lie that our relationships will be more healthy for understanding and knowing. There's only one who can truly carry the weight of your needs. And it's your Savior, Jesus. And thank God for a spouse and spouses who work to be a reflection of that in your marriage. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there's a lot to think about, a lot to wrestle with, a lot of feelings of guilt. I pray some feelings of hope that maybe where we've gone off in a ditch at times in our marriage is that we just didn't recognize what we were thinking and that we were believing a lie. But now that the truth has exposed it, Lord, I just pray that you would guide and bless each marriage represented in this room. I also would ask that you be with those in this room who are not married. Help them in their journey to possibly finding a spouse. And if that's not your will for someone, bring the right people around them who can also be a reflection as friends of your love and grace for them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.